Genesis 9 is where we're going to resume this morning. If you didn't catch all that, because we're just talking about daylight savings time, which of course is today. And then in the spring, when we jump forward again, that will be, and, and I really don't know, so I'm not trying to be funny or speculative, I just... I don't know if states are still going to have powers to address this, but federally, in the spring, when we go back on daylight savings time, that will be the last move of daylight savings time. It will be permanent time from there on. So, which it was always supposed to be a temporary thing. It was supposed to be a temporary energy saving wartime measure. I don't Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would, in every way possible, to the fullest extent of our human abilities, comprehend that you are our creator, that this universe exists because you have spoken it into being, that it exists ultimately for your purposes, that it will last as long as you leave it in place, that we are your creations. And that by virtue of being our creator, you have absolute dominion and authority over everything that pertains to us. And so thank you that you have explained yourself to us and help us to not only mentally, but in the very core of our being, accept and submit to those explanations to live as your people. And pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday and a couple of weeks ago, we, I kind of abandoned for as a Sunday school lesson what we were doing on Providence, and we're just going to take some time and walk through the first, at least the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and just deal with very familiar territory. I don't think that I have much to say that you don't think and know, but just a reminder, um, Right? Jesus, when people would ask him questions, particularly tricky questions, it was not uncommon for him, it's not uncommon for the New Testament writers to take us back to the very beginning and to orient all things according to the beginning. So we talked about the beginning of our world, um, the creation of the universe and planet Earth, and then last week we began to talk about the fact that God created us and Um, we turned our attention to Genesis. There are several passages, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 5, in which we are told that we were made in the image of God. And I gave to you a definition from Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, The fact that man is is in the image of God means that man is like God and that he represents God. And we are like God, then we discovered, to some extent, in our physical form, God does not have a body, but the Son does. And the Son, although he did not possess that physical form, he was the first to have that physical form. And so we are made in God's image to some extent physically. We talked about that. 
And <clears throat> we talked about the fact that to be made in God's image means that we possess personality. And we define personality as being intellect, will, and emotion. That we have minds and we have things that we want and we have feelings. These are true of God. Um, we talked about the fact that we are made in God's image and that we possess morality, which includes both moral precepts and responsibilities. We have a sense that things are right and wrong, and we have a responsibility to do things that are right. And even, even in a country like, like ours or any country that has seriously departed from the living God, we we order our society along principles of what we perceive right and wrong. And we try to hold people to those behaviors. And then we saw that man is like God in the fact that he is a spiritual being. He can worship and he can fellowship. And this is really the, the primary reason for being made in the image of God, I think, is so that we can adequately fellowship with our creator, something that... The, the remainder of his creation simply cannot do because it was not created to do. Uh, the, the, the animal creation and the inanimate creation was designed to display God's power and glory, but it was never designed or created to be in communion with him. Um, it is not an instrument to fellowship. And, and I had a conversation about that because I made the point that God doesn't have Right, Paul asked the question in 1 Corinthians 9, Doth God take care for oxen? Or is this said for our sake? No doubt for our sake, Paul says. He completely dismisses God's concern about the, the animal kingdom. And we just point, I, you know, in further conversation, right, that's, a, that's a relative explanation. God created those animals, and he made a way for those animals to survive. They can feed themselves. He feeds them. Um, uh, he has a purpose for their existence. By the way, one of the questions that he asked Job was about that existence. Why do the wild animals even live? And what is the, what is the point of wild animals? But he doesn't have intimate fellowship with them. But this is something that he does have and desires to have with humanity. And also then under our spirituality we have eternal existence. So that is the way that we are like God and we represent God in that just as God has dominion over everything, God has granted to us dominion over the earth. And again, I don't want to go back and re-preach this, folks, but I would argue that this is not incidental to what it means to be a Christian. As we think about what are big issues of our day, like climate change and going green, and the ever-growing percentage of people who almost treat humanity as an intrusion or a detriment to the ongoing existence of planet Earth, that the Earth was given to us to literally manhandle. And we're not going to take the time to do this this morning, but <clears throat> that word dominion is an incredibly forcible word. In the Hebrew language, if you took somebody and you tied them up and you kidnapped them and you enslaved them and you took them and used them for your selfish purposes, the word that we would use to describe that is the act of dominion. 
And God said, have dominion. Subdue the earth. And so I would point out again, folks, and I'm not trying to be a political crusader. I'm trying to be a biblical crusader. Building roads and bridges and dams and diverting waterways and building power generating plants and pulling coal out of the ground and using uranium to generate electricity. These are not offenses either to the planet or to our creator. They are products of our purpose to have dominion over the earth, to use it for our existence. And to some extent, Paul said through Timothy, or God said through Paul in 1 Timothy 6, that God has given us richly all things to enjoy, to be blessed by the world that he gave to us. And so um, we are God's representatives. To do that well, to do it wisely, to do it carefully, again, is an act of great worship um, and This is something that it seems to me is lost even among many people who believe in the Lord. They're almost apologetic for disturbing the soil. But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Where we ended up, I don't want to say that because I just disagreed with that, but I mean for my purposes this morning. Where I ended last week, as far as I got last week, was Genesis chapter 9 to raise this question. Right? So we were made in God's likeness to be like him. And we were made for this purpose to be his representatives. What happened to the image of God in man when he sinned in the Garden of Eden? What did that do to us? And so <clears throat> this is where Genesis 9, 6 comes in. And of course by Genesis 9... We've had the universal condemnation of mankind. And God, in his sovereign will, chose to save only eight people. Enough people to once again populate the earth and perpetuate the species. And God then gives this. And for those of you who have any exposure to the Abeka curriculum, you should have had this taught to you on a regular basis the first, the foundational civil ordinance, Genesis 9-6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. The first civil ordinance is the implementation of capital punishment. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So in other words, folks, of great significance, apart from orienting us with reference to our conduct to each other, so that if I were to murder you or you were to murder me, there is something far greater going on than just my sin against you or your sin against me. It is ultimately, at its core, a sin against God because the person that I have murdered was made in God's image. So that both the murdered and the murderer are, exist in the image of God. So our fall, or Adam's fall, and our fall in Adam, does not eradicate the fact that we have been made in the image of God. <clears throat> but it certainly does impact it. It mars it, <clears throat> and it distorts it. 
And we're just going to spend our time this morning looking at some things about that. So let me just kind of jump to the, to the conclusion and, and try and explain why, why we should really think about this and think about this carefully. First of all, because it is the goal of evangelism. Why do people need to be redeemed? And why do they need to be redeemed by another human being? Because they were made in the image of God and at the fall of Adam. They were alienated. Their, their image bearing is altered. It is alienated from God and it needs to be recovered. And then secondly, all Christian ministry revolves around the fact that we are image bearers. So our salvation right, restores us to the place in position fully and in practice orienting us back to our Creator. And then our Christian lives are lived out in becoming ever more like our Creator because we were made in His image. So this is the, this is the, the heart of all Christian ministry. <clears throat> Right, so let's just kind of go back and look now this morning, and we'll just kind of jump around the Bible in a variety of places. To be made in the image of God, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and get into you know to the physical element of that. Right, we die, we get sick. <clears throat> um, but let's just talk about man's personality. To be made in the image of God means that we have personality. And one of the elements of personality is that we have intellect, we have minds. So what does God say about the mind of a fallen man? Does he say that it no longer bears his image? No. But he does say that it is alienated. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 17. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 17. Paul writes, This I say therefore... And testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity or the emptiness of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So this is, when it comes to intellectual, I, when in this, man, this is going back a lifetime ago. We, used, we had a, one of our sergeants when I worked at the prison was willing to talk about religion and he always wanted us to prove the existence of God to him. That was, that was his thing. Can you, can you prove it? And the answer to that, by the way, is no. You can't prove it. There's, there is, there is, no scientific methodology that will prove his existence. People are blinded intellectually. And this is part of the problem, folks. Right? You're trying to explain something to people, and they don't get it. And in fact, Paul goes on to explain to the Corinthians that not only do they not understand it, they think it's pretty dumb. That was the way your mind worked before you got saved. <clears throat> now, you may have been saved at a very young age, and that alienated mind didn't get a lot of time to develop and to blossom and to harden. But, folks, let us not be deceived. 
Before we got saved, all of our minds operated like that. They were dark and alienated. They didn't understand God. They found fault with God. Nothing about God made much sense to them. I'm not saying they weren't religious. I'm saying that they put a lot more credibility in what their religion taught than what the Bible actually said about them. This is the nature of unbelieving men. But what happens to a man's intellect when he gets saved? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 15. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, the heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So an unbeliever is darkened, and we are illuminated. Now, of course, folks, and I don't want to get into this, but the great point of controversy, Bible-believing people don't debate the darkness of the mind of unbelievers. At least most of them don't. And they don't debate the illuminating work of the Spirit on the mind of those who are saved. But they greatly debate the the mechanism that it's going to take to turn the heart to the Lord. And I don't want to get into that. That's a whole other subject matter. But we don't all agree on that. But I would just point out, if a a passage like Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 is true, and there are other passages like that, then it contradicts the scripture to argue that somewhere buried deep inside of that person is the ability to comprehend and that the goal of the evangelist is simply to discover the key that will turn on the light because the Bible just doesn't allow for that. They are dark and alienated and they are not interested. So that is intellect, and an unbeliever has a darkened intellect, and a believer has an enlightened intellect, but both have the image of God. Secondly, with reference to their will, what do unbelieving people want? We'll turn to Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> and again, we'll, let, we'll just let the Lord describe us. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. All right, so here would be God's position about lost people, folks. And, and, And again, look, right? We see this at some level in some people who are just obviously enslaved. Because addiction is part of our society. It is part of the fabric of our society. 
And, and so we, we are aware that people are addicted to alcohol. And of course, science has gone exploring for the reason why some people are addicted to alcohol. And some people are addicted to drugs. And we see those kinds of addictions. And we, okay, and by the way, this is something that we should not necessarily do. We tend to think perhaps of those people as being certainly, this is certainly sad, but, but they are not really just a, a small segment because the Bible is very clear that all unbelieving people are enslaved to sin. They're not all enslaved to the same sin. They're not all enslaved equally to sin. But they're enslaved to sin. You were a servant of sin. We did, right? What, and again, I don't want to get into this. I'm not looking for, I'm not really looking to fight with anybody, but there are just homes, folks. And and when you have a Christian school, you have a tendency perhaps to see more deeply into a home than you would under other circumstances. They're just homes, and the entire home is driven by the appetites of the people who live in that home. What they do, when they do it, where they go, how they act, how they behave. It's just driven. And the Bible word for that is lust, which we tend to think of as only being sexual in nature. But it's just our appetites. Right? As human beings, we're, we have appetites. We want things. <clears throat> and... Being sinful human beings, we are generally not silent about those things. We are vociferous about what we want, even as small children. And if the authorities in the home are no different than the children in the home, then the entire home is just going to operate on that basis of slavery to appetite. That's what the Bible teaches. Not slavery to the basest appetites, but slavery to one's appetites. Back to Romans chapter 6. But what happens when a person gets saved? God be thanked, ye were the servants of sin, but ye from the, have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now what comes into the life of believers? A whole new phenomenon comes into the life of a believer, folks. Conviction. And again, I'm not going to spend any time on this, although I've had a number of conversations, both with, actually started with one of the guys, and I contacted one of my pastor friends because a, a prominent preacher has recently publicized an old sermon in which he said that believing people don't still have sin natures. And... I sin. I have sinned somewhere, so I have. <clears throat> I have sinful appetites that I know are wrong because I now have righteous appetites that wage war. Right. So lost people and saved people have an intellect. The mind of an unbeliever is darkened when it comes to God. Might be a brilliant scientist, folks. 
Might be a tremendous businessman and a technological innovator. That's not what Paul is talking about. It's not what God is talking about. He's talking about with reference to God. So that you get titans of industry who make statements like, there's more value to me in reading the Sunday paper than there is in attending a church service. Why would you say that? Because your mind is blinded. That's why. But our minds have been illuminated. And an unbeliever's appetites are only sinful. Again, the Bible is not saying only vile, but only sinful. He is completely oriented to himself. Completely oriented. I mean, just watch television, folks. What is the, what is the driving force of every relationship? Happiness. Just, right, I, just, I just want you to be happy. And why are you making decisions? Because I'm no longer happy. And I just, I just have to be happy. And this comes as a, as a nuclear explosion to many people, but God is far more concerned that we do what we're told than that we're happy in doing it. I mean, that would be, God said, you got a relationship? Okay, here's what I want you to do in that relationship. We are slaves to righteousness. We have been enslaved to the doing of right. I'm not going to have us turn to this passage for the sake of time, but we're, we're just talking about man by personality, which is his intellect and his will and his emotions. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, our emotions are sinful. We are creatures of jealousy and lust and malice and envy. But a saved man's emotions are emotions of godliness, peace, love, joy, Now the world, again folks, can talk about love and use love and express love, but it has to redefine the word to fit its world. It can't, it can't, use, it can't use God's dictionary to define its terms because it can't do that. It, it simply cannot do that as God would demand. So there is man made in the image of God fallen when it comes to his personality. His intellect is darkened. His will is sinful. His emotions are enslaved to sin. This is his state. This is the air that he breathes. Secondly, made in the image of God has a dimension of spirituality, right? which we talked about has the component of fellowship. Well, fallen people have no fellowship with God, folks. And numbers of you are too young to remember this because this was probably 35 or 40 years ago that a prominent Southern Baptist pastor got in a world of trouble for making the statement that God didn't hear the prayers of unbelievers. 
But folks, biblically, there is nothing that an unbeliever can do that makes God happy with him. Solomon tells us that even the plowing of the wicked is sin. In other words, that guy that works hard, that is productive in society, that is contributing to society, that pays his taxes, that helps his neighbor, what does God think of him? Not very much. Not very much. Because there's no fellowship there. He has no ability to relate his life to his maker. This is the fundamental problem, folks. It is not that he is only as sinful as he can be every moment of the day. It is that nothing that he does in his life, no decision, no ambition, no emotion, no decision, has anything to do with God. He can do nothing for God's sake. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 21. And you that were sometime, and sometime is the King James Bible way of saying we would call it once upon a time. Right? An indefinite point in time past that is kind of incidental to the conversation. Once upon a time. You that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Unbelievers don't have fellowship with God. They may go to church. We had, for a number of years, folks, a banker who went to Mass every day or observed a Mass of some sort every day. He was a good guy. He was a good friend to us. He's a good banker. But he is alienated from God Paul's very clear, when when a person works to be accepted by God, all that that does is increase his debt. I mean, imagine, folks, if, if you sent a check every month to the mortgage company and every month what happened was your mortgage went up by that amount. You weren't reducing the debt, you were increasing it. But a saved man is reconciled and restored to fellowship. First Colossians 1.21 You that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So as a spiritual being, <clears throat> unbelievers do not have fellowship with God. Now, because of the fact that they are intellectually blinded, many of them are not terribly concerned about that, and many of them are deceived about that, how it, you know, that, that what they're doing is adequate. But that's not what the Bible would say. When it comes then spiritually to our worship, <clears throat> Fallen man's worship is corrupt. And again, for the sake of time, I will not turn to it. But Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 is a lengthy recitation of the worship activities of fallen man. All done from the position of absolute confidence that they are masters of living. 
professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. They never, they never suggest <clears throat> that they're wrong. They just suggest that they're right and will be more right next time after one more scientific study is released. <clears throat> but a saved man has the capacity and the expectation, I would point out, to worship God properly. Jesus said, John 4.24, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That is possible for us, folks. It is possible, and in fact, I would argue that we should probably expect that for those in any assembly like ours who are true believers, that their worship is pleasing to the Lord on any given Lord's Day. And with reference to spirituality, we talked about the fact that man has life and he has life eternal A fallen man is going to exist somewhere forever. Because it is the nature of being made in the image of God that you have eternal existence. Unlike God, we didn't always exist prior to our creation. This is just part of the, perhaps the mystery that God created us. But from that point on, folks, we have an eternal identity. Ephesians 2, in verse number 1, And you hath he quickened, has he made alive, he has given life, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, to the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So that unbelieving people, folks, are <clears throat> spiritually dead, and they are on the fast track to eternal death, which is not eternal annihilation. but is the act of dying eternally. Both physically, and I think that we should remember that part of being made in the image of God is to have a physical identity. This is what the great white throne is. It is the reunion of spirit and body to be, to be judged eternally. Ephesians 2, 4, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And of course, John three sixteen, in addition to its other beautiful truth, just assures us of this, that we who believe have eternal life. So, with reference to our intellect, we're still in the image of God, but it is marred. And what needs to happen, right? That 
That needs to be changed, miraculously changed. And how does that happen? Well, when God makes a new person. And with reference to our personality, we worship and we live. And with reference then finally to our morality, a fallen man's conscience is fallen. It is fallen. Titus 1.15, Under the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now, the Bible will talk about the fact that some people's consciences are seared. They have gone beyond being able to feel in certain areas. But all that Paul is arguing in Titus is that fallen people have a conscience that cannot really grasp the realities of what God demands of them intellectually. There are some people, folks, that trying to explain to them why it is wrong to steal something is something they just cannot get. Or trying to explain to them why looking at pornography is wrong is just something they cannot grasp. How can it be wrong? It doesn't hurt anybody. These are conscience issues. These are matters of conscience. But a saved man's conscience is brought into a potentially right relationship with God. And we understand, right, that we're all, we're, 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 so as an unbeliever, I, I have that, I had that conscience, and now I have been made a new creature, and I have God's working on my conscience, and our consciences, folks, we understand this, right, because we are supposed to give each other great latitude in matters of conscience when our consciences are directed towards doing right before the Lord. Romans chapter 14. Paul said, as part of his defense in Acts chapter 24, herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense, first of all toward God, and then toward men. But supremely, a conscience void of offense before the Lord. So when the day comes, right, because we're all going to appear before the judgment seat and we're all going to give an account, we're all going to have a conversation with the Lord. And what we all need to be able to do, folks, is to live in such a way that when that moment comes, we don't have have a conscience problem before him. With reference to our morality, we have moral responsibilities which fallen men are not able to meet. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, The mind of the flesh, the natural man, as Paul calls him, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, 
and neither indeed can be, cannot bring himself into that position. So then Romans 8.8, 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And again, we've met people, we may know people who somehow believe that their basic human goodness will be enough. That they're not that bad. Or their basic human goodness coupled with their few religious activities will be enough to get them over the top. And, but what does the Lord say? There is nothing that you can do that satisfies me. There is nothing that you can do that will be pleasing to me in that area. This is, this is part of the end product of the entire Levitical system. The law of Moses that existed for all those years was to demonstrate to us over and over and over again that we cannot be pleasing to the Lord in the flesh. But on the other hand, folks, <clears throat> we who believe, that does not describe us so that for those of us that believe, we have a verse like Philippians 2.13 to cling to. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God gives me both the desire to do it and the ability to do that which is pleasing to him. So again, folks, to return to my, as I mentioned at the very beginning, just to kind of start with the closing. right? What is evangelism then? Evangelism is the work of proclaiming the work of God that makes transformation possible. How will a man, how will it be that he can be restored to a right relationship with God? To what God intended for him to do. And he needs to be saved or that person needs to be saved. They need to be regenerated. They need the entirety of a new nature, God's nature, not not a reformation of the old nature. Right? Not a, yeah, I'm going to dig in and try harder and I really need to get back into church kind of moment, but the, com- the creation of a completely new man, this miracle of the new birth. And then Christian ministry should focus upon the new man. I, I mean, I-, I hope, folks, that the vast majority of the gist of my preaching is to people who are saved. Not preaching to people who are not saved. Not preaching as if people are not saved. But preaching as if people are saved. That's, that's the gist of what the church is supposed to do. It's, church is a ministry to the saved. And this perhaps is not the, the best time to get into a philosophy of church ministry conversation, folks. But... But the New Testament is very clear that church ministry, the ministry, for instance, of the public services, is a ministry to believing people, not unbelieving people. And it's supposed to be oriented to those. Evangelism is oriented to those who are unbelievers, telling them that they must become believers and how that will happen. Church is oriented to believing people. And and its thrust is towards people who have been regenerated and their image of God has been positionally fully restored and in practice is in the process of being restored to what God has. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We'll be happy to talk to you privately, but uh, 